I've got a question for you this morning, and uh, I'll admit it's a trick question. Is it easy or is it difficult to live for Christ? I don't answer so quickly, because the truth is you, you could legitimately answer the question both ways. It's easy in the sense that I didn't have to die for my sins, and neither did you. It's been paid for. It's been done. It's been taken care of. Um, that's easy. Trust. There's another sense in which it is difficult because if you remember the old hymn, it's not just trust, it's trust and obey. And listen, that's difficult. The trust part is really easy, or at least it can be. You can say that you trust and not really trust and nobody knows it because all they hear are the words coming out of your mouth. But the obedience makes your trust visible. And so, you know, the the Christian life is one that is supremely easy. But it is one that requires us to walk a narrow path. And therefore, it is difficult. We need His power to be able to do the things that we are doing. And so this morning, we conclude our series on the king and the cradle by looking at what I think is one of the most highly exalted pictures of who Jesus is. And the book of Colossians will be in chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Again, it's a song that has been written. It's a, it's a poem that has been written to Christ, extolling his virtues. And I hope, as we have journeyed through this series over this Christmas season, that you have seen very clearly the glory of God in the face of Christ. Because the, the consistent testimony has been that if you want to see God, you look to Christ. He was no mere man. He was God in the flesh. And so as we come to the book of Colossians, this is a, this is a passage that I think has some uh, particular um, relevance to us because the city of Colossae was a very major metropolitan and cosmopolitan area. In, very, in a lot of ways, it would be very similar to Charlotte, the largest and most significant city in its region. People from the small towns and villages around it would move there because there were additional opportunities. And it was this crossroads of all different kinds of people. I've been getting research information on all the different um, international peoples that live in the Metro Charlotte area. It's amazing. I mean, the entire world is here among us. Um, and it's, it's strange because they actually kind of group themselves. I mean, you can figure out zip codes where Indians live. You can figure out zip codes where Israelis live. You can figure out zip codes where Somalis live in the Charlotte area. <clears throat> and so the Colossae was the same. It, it had a very large Jewish population. Um, had a very large kind of Greek influence. But then those people that they referred to as the barbarians, you know, the Visigoths, the, the, the barbaric people from the north, also lived in uh, Colossae. And so you had all of this mixing of different cultures. And for a faithful Christian in the city of Colossae, the question was, how do you stay current on everything that's happening? Because there's a ton that's happening. There's change, there's people, there's all kinds of things. How do you stay current with everything and fit Jesus into it? Is that a question you have going into 2015? Is 2015 going to be a busy year for you? You don't know. Who here has the clairvoyance to know what's going to happen in 2015? Are you going to get a promotion or are you going to get sick? Nobody knows the challenges that are coming. And so while it's important for us to ask the question, how does, how does Jesus 
fit into my life. You cannot ask the question like that's a genuine question. Jesus has to fit in. You can't ask the question like he doesn't fit and you have to make him fit. You have to find a way to honor Christ as Lord and make him supreme over all things in your life. Instead of like taking a little bit of Jesus and kind of filling in the holes in your life with him, he should be the essence of what it is that you're you're trying to do and communicate. And so that's really the message of Colossians is that Jesus is supreme. And Paul essentially tells us two ways in Colossians 1, 15 through 23, that this happens. And I'll give you point number one and point number two right now so you can listen. He tells us that Jesus is supreme because of who he is. He's God. Jesus is supreme because of who he is. What is his identity? What is his character? What is his nature? But number two, it's not just who he is that makes Jesus supreme. It's what he does. Now we're going to tease that out. There's a couple subpoints in your outline. Um, you've got that in front of you in the bulletin. Uh, but those, that's the direction that we're heading. What does the Bible have to say about the supremacy of Christ and who he is and in what he does? And so if you have your copy of the scriptures, we'll be in Colossians 1. And if you don't, uh, there should be a Bible in the pew rack right in front of you. Page 875 should be where you would find Colossians chapter 1. And so when we talk about Jesus' supremacy, because of who he is, the fact that he is God, there are three specific ways that this is talked about in this passage. Um, And we'll begin with chapter 1, verse 15, the first half. It says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. It says quite clearly for our first sub-point that Jesus is the image of God. Now the problem is when we use the word image, we have all kinds of issues of contemporary usage that I think kind of cloud our judgment and kind of maybe get us off track. Um, this morning, gentlemen, if in getting ready for church you shaved, hopefully you did that in front of a mirror to make sure you got everything that you needed to get. Now, if you're bold like Scott Crouch, man, he just lets it rip, you know. He's a straight razor and a blade, you know, knife blade, you know. When you're looking in the mirror, what do you see? You see an image of yourself. Now, Play along here, because this is getting a little technical, but I think it helps to explain what the Bible says when it says that Jesus is the image of God. When you look at yourself in the mirror and you see your image, that image is not you. Now, it's a representation of you. It's an accurate picture of you, but it's not you. Because when you step away from the mirror, what's in the mirror? Nothing. You, You could kind of follow where I'm going. When we hear the word image, we think of imitation, copy, or reproduction of something that actually exists. That the, the reproduction is not the thing, but it points to the thing. In the Greek language, the word that is used is the word icon. Now, uh, for those of you that perhaps have come from a high church tradition, um, in seminary we used to call it the smells and bells tradition, you know, where they have the incense and they have, you know, the, the, the choirs and uh, they perhaps sing in a foreign language you would have these um, really ornate pictures perhaps in your stained glass mirrors or you've seen it, you know, where it's a picture of a saint and he's kind of got this glowing thing around his head, you know. Looks like he's got a little gold halo. That's an icon. And so in some religious traditions, those icons were actually objects of worship. Those images were 
objects of worship. In the Greek language, when the word icon is used, it's not talking about something that is a simply a representation or a copy of something. Uh, uh, to be an image of something is to actually... Um, what's the best way to say it? It is something that actually has the essence or the nature of the thing that it's representing. So it is the thing. It's a, a copy of the thing, but it is a thing. Perhaps, perhaps a good illustration to talk about this would be um, our kids. No, not my kids. They're going, Dad's not talking about us. Um, but just kids in general. You know, it's funny is sometimes when somebody meets you and they see your kids, they go, ah, yeah. I see mom in her. I see dad in her. Now, what's that mean? Well, your kid is in your image. Now, it's he, the, image, the image that your kid is of you is not the same thing that the image is that you see in the mirror, okay? You, you, you tracking with me here? We're spending just a little bit of time on it. Why does your kid look like you? Because he actually has your substance, your DNA. He is a part, not just of you, but of your spouse, but he's a part of you. And so that's, that's really more the essence. When it says that Jesus is the image, he's not some ephemeral shadow. He's not just an image, of a, a, a picture that shows up in a mirror. He actually bears the substance of who God is. That's what it's talking about when it says that he shares the reality. He is a, the image bearer, the nature bearer picture of who Christ is. It's a very rare word. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament, it only occurs twice, right here in Colossians. And I believe the other reference is 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, where it says that Jesus is, uh, bears the glory of the image of God. And so, a uh, very rare word, but when it's used of Christ, it's saying that Jesus is precisely and absolutely in correspondence with who God is. As a matter of fact, did you see how it said it here? He is the image of what? What's it say? Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. Trick question. How many of you have seen God? Nobody? I mean, listen, we got a good crowd here this morning. Nobody has seen God? No, he's invisible. But Jesus is the perfect, visible representation of who God is. That's what it's saying. He has, he has made God perfectly revealed. Now, <clears throat> Jesus' imaging of God is not the same as Adam's. It's a little bit of a wordplay here. But the Bible says that Adam and Eve were made in the image of God, but that Jesus is the image of God. And there's a whole lot more meaning and difference than just an N or an S in those two words. Made in the image of God or is the image of God. And so that's the very first way they talk about Jesus being supreme because of who he is. He is the image of God. Secondly, it talks about Jesus being preeminent. He is first over all things. And you'll see this um, in, uh, there'll be a passage of scripture on the screen here. You may not be able to read it because it's a lot of scripture. But I want you to listen to the repeated phrase that you'll see in this passage. It begins in uh, uh, Colossians 1.15. It says, he is the firstborn over all things. All things were created by him and all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him 
All things hold together. He is the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in all things. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself. Listen, I'm not a rocket scientist, but when it says all things eight times in seven verses, there's a point that the author's trying to get, uh, 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 trying to get across. And it's this very fact that Jesus is preeminent. He is before all things. He is over all things. All things are for him. He is, he is it. He's preeminent. Now, one of the ways that it talks about this at the end of verse 15, it says, not only is he the image of the invisible God, he's the firstborn of all creation. When we hear this firstborn language, it's used twice. It's used in verse 15, and it's used again in verse 18. Um, the firstborn language uh, becomes an issue when you have conversations with Jehovah's Witnesses who believe that Jesus is not God, but he is a God-like being who was the first thing that was created. So they go, they take this firstborn language, and they go, hey, that's it. Well, no, the firstborn language, that's not the only way firstborn language can be used. It's really another way to talk about Christ's supremacy. It doesn't mean that he was born, that he's the first in a long series of things. It denotes rank and responsibility. Who outranks Jesus? Nobody. Nobody. He is first in honor. He's first in time because he preexisted. We'll talk about that here in just a second. And many see the idea of inherited rights. You know the, the big fancy word primogenitor, which means the firstborn son gets the lion's share of the inheritance. Uh, Caleb is my thirdborn, but he's my firstborn son. And he likes to tell his big sisters that when mom and dad die, I get it all. And so he, he understands... The right of the firstborn. Firstborn doesn't denote creation when we talk about Christ, and that will become evident in context, okay? You hear the word firstborn, if that's all you read, you put a period there and you're done, it would be, it'd be really easy for you to become a cultist, to depart from scriptural teaching on who Christ is. But as we see it in context, it'll become clear that Jesus was not born, he was not created. This firstborn language is a way to talk about his honor, his primacy. But uh, this firstborn language is also a chance to talk about his relationship. We'll, we'll talk about this a little more. It'll be kind of woven in and out. His relationship is twofold. He relates to creation and he relates to God. How does, how does God in his relationship relate to creation? He's above creation. He is the creator of creation. So yeah, this firstborn language, he is the firstborn of creation. He is the source through which all of creation comes. His relationship to the Father. He is the firstborn born of, of, of God. He is in a special, non-repeatable relationship with God as a part of the Trinity. And so again, this firstborn language, which we'll come back to again in verse 18, is not talking about being born or being created. It's talking about rank and relationship. The third way that we talk about the supremacy of God, the supremacy of Christ being God, is in verse 19. <clears throat> we see that Jesus is the fullness of God. Verse 19 says it very succinctly. It says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Now, it may be on the same page for you, but look at chapter 2, verse 9. Paul says the same thing, but with a little bit different emphasis. He says, For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. You see the difference there? He's saying the same thing. Uh, 115, 119, he says, all the fullness dwells in him. 2.9, he says, all of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. In the flesh and blood body that Jesus was incarnated into, all of God's fullness was there. 
So I've said this before. Again, it's a trick question. Jesus was God. Jesus was man. Yes, that's what the Bible teaches. So was it a fifth? Was it a 50-50 split? Was he part God? Part man? 50% God? 50%? No. Tough to fathom, but he was 100% man and 100% God. He was not like some Greek demigod. You know, in the Greek pantheon of gods, you have these gods that cavorted with their god wives and had god children. And sometimes when they uh, were misbehaving... These God, God beings would come down and have relationships with human wives and then they would produce a demigod like Perseus, Josh Cannon, you know, who is part God, part man. And so that comes back here because there's a particular heresy that uh, the book of Colossians is written to uh, combat. But the point that he's making is that Jesus is the fullness of God. Jesus lacked nothing of what it meant to be God. He was filled to the rim with Godness. And now the heresy that they're trying to combat is, a, is an interesting one. Uh, for uh, an illust- illustrative aid, picture in your mind here just real quickly a bullseye. Okay, You've got the, the red dot in the middle, and then you've got the rings kind of outside of that. Um, <clears throat> the Colossian heresy that Paul was trying to combat was represented by this bullseye. The bullseye is God, and you want to get to the bullseye. You want to get to God. But with the um, kind of Greek mythology that had crept in and been blended with kind of um, Jewish Christian teaching, they believed in one God, but then they believed all these kind of circles around the bullseye were these other beings. Maybe they were angels. Maybe they were archangels. Maybe they were just celestial beings. God, God-like, supernatural, less than God, but supernatural-like beings. Uh, and maybe they were called thrones, powers, dominions, and authorities. And to get to God, you had to go through the thrones, powers, dominions, and authorities. Completely unbiblical. But there was this Colossian heresy where um, you had all these kind of supernatural beings that had a little shard of the fullness of God. They had a little tidbit of the fullness of God. They had a little little bit of the fullness of God. And what Paul's trying to say here is that when we come to Jesus, we have the fullness of God. He's not one of, he is the And so, Colossians, I know you've got all these popular teachers that are teaching you. You need to worship these beings. You need to worship these powers. You need to worship these authorities. You need to worship these thrones. You need to worship these dominions. He says, hogwash. Don't believe it. Go straight to the source. Worship the one who is the fullness. Not these created beings who have a part of the fullness. They have God-like attributes. Don't do it. Don't do it. So we see here, when we talk about who Jesus is, that Jesus is really the king of, communi- king of communication. He reveals visibly what the invisible God is like. But Christ doesn't just reveal God to us in who he is. He reveals who he is through what he does. So the remainder of Colossians really deals with this issue. And uh, the first thing that we see under what Jesus does is that he is the Lord of creation. Listen to what the Bible says in verses 15, second half of verse 15 through verse 17. It says that he is the firstborn over all creation. We've dealt with that a little bit already. <clears throat> verse 16. For everything, everything, what's that include? Everything. 
Everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. It says here, again, uh, he's the firstborn of creation, denoting his primacy and his priority over creation. It says he is creation's conception. Where did all things come from? All things came, they were created by him. And then did you see what it did right there in verse 16? It says he created all things. And what do we mean by all things? Not just the stuff that you can see. Here's the thing, it's crazy. I, I, don't, I don't read scientific journals often. But there's some good illustrative material uh, in there sometimes. You know, there's stuff between the stars. We, we look up and we look at the stars and we just think that space is this one vast emptiness of stuff. No. There's all kinds of stuff that make up space that we can't see. Matter, dark matter, uh, neutrinos, all kinds of things. It says that all things, visible and invisible, were created by him. And then it mentions some of these invisible things. Thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities that many people believe, the Colossians believed, were these celestial beings that needed to be worshipped in order to get to worshipping God. To get to the bullseye, you've got to go through all of this stuff. And Paul's saying, no, don't do it. And the point that he's making here is that the spirit world is as much under the sun's authority as the visible created world. The material world, rain, sleet, snow, sun, fall, spring, summer, winter, all of it, all life, all created things fall under him, but so do all of these spiritual things. God's dominion through Christ is complete. He's supreme over them. They are created by him. They're created through him. And I love the way that it says this. It's created for him. Now, if you have, um, <clears throat> if you have spent some time with loved ones over these last few days, you have um, more than likely spent more than you needed to spend and eaten more than you needed to eat over the last few days. Um, but you have bought things for someone. <clears throat> now, the problem is with little kids, sometimes they don't understand the buying for. Because if they buy you something that they like, and they happen to be four or five years old, they think that they can take it back whenever they want. And what does that produce? Conflict! You gave it to me! No, but I like it! They don't understand the giving for. Men, for us, if we have bought something nice for our wives, the, the fulfillment that comes in giving is not completed when the transaction is paid for. It comes through the enjoyment of the thing. I, I gave it for Marcy. If she puts it, in a, puts it in a cupboard and never looks at it again, then, you know, man, I really struck out at Christmas time, you know? Um, I really, boy, that's an epic fail, you know? Um, you want them to enjoy because you're buying it for them. Here's the thing, guys. Hey, listen, this blow your mind. Why do you exist? According to Colossians 1. You exist for God. Now, young people, I would tell you this, man. Um, if you learn that lesson earlier in life, you will be better off. You will be better off. I, I can't tell you how many people get to about 30 or 35, 40 years old, they come back to church and they realize that they have not lived for God. And now they have to go through like remedial school to kind of catch back up. 
young people, teenagers, if you will understand what it means that you exist for God. It says all things were created by him. All things were created through him. But all things were created for him. Guys, and listen, you don't have to be a teenager to appreciate this. Man and woman, grandma and grandpa, you were created for God and for his glory. And you will experience God's blessing and a, a, a sweet touch of his presence in your life if you go into 2015 understanding that. That you exist for no other purpose than the glory of God. And when people don't understand that and they try to live their own way, that's when all kinds of priorities get out of whack. And so they're saying, Jesus is the Lord of creation. He's in charge of everything. And verse 17 is another one of those mind-blowing kind of things. It says that he's, he's before all things and by him all things hold together. By him all things hold together. <clears throat> we live in a town, and David, David Mills is not here in this, this service. If you get up early in the morning, you will see the um, Rock Hill Mushroom Cloud. The Catawba Nuclear Power Station. You know, you don't, you don't have to be here long to know that there's nuclear power in the area. Clean, efficient, very powerful. And it's the power that comes from splitting a single atom. December 7th, we memorialized the attack on Pearl Harbor that was ended by the dropping of two atomic bombs. And we get so proud of human achievement and scientific ingenuity when we think about the power that's unleashed from splitting a single atom. Let me just ask you the question. What kind of power does it take to keep every atom that ever existed together? We pat ourselves on the back, we split one atom. Think of the, there, there isn't even a number large enough to talk about all the, mat, all the atoms that make up this building and the people and the air that are in this room. And think about that for the entire cosmos. And this is that Jesus Christ, the, the baby that Mary coddled and swung in her arms and sang lullabies to was the super glue that held the cosmos together. That's amazing. This is what Jesus does. This is why he's supreme. He's not just the Lord of creation. That's fascinating. That's awesome. That's tremendous. But the Bible also tells us in this passage that Jesus is the Lord of new creation. He's not just the Lord of creation. He's the Lord of new creation. Well, what in the world is that? Guys, that's what Jesus does for us in Christ for those who believe. Two ways specifically that we see this lordship demonstrated. I'll give them to you so you can listen better. Jesus is the Lord of the church in verses 18 through 20. And then applied very personally to us, Jesus is the Lord of the Christian in verses 21 through 23. Now, the temptation for you to see, all right, we're going from Jesus being the Lord of creation to Jesus being the Lord of the church is to think that Paul, and then he goes from the church to the Christian. We tend to think that God is going from like the mega scale to the micro scale. And that obviously, you know, when you deal with, he's the king of the cosmos to the king of the church, that that's a necessary downward step. You would be mistaken. Because where does the lordship of Christ reign most supreme if not in the church? If you want to see what it looks like for Jesus to be the Lord of a corporate group of people, what are you going to see at Walmart? What are you going to see at Daddy's Money? What are you going to see at the restaurant you go to after church? 
you're not going to see the lordship of Christ. You're going to see the lordship of human beings. Self-sovereignty. But in the church, the lordship of Christ should be more glorious here than anywhere else on the face of the planet. So don't think that Paul is going from the cosmos, grand in all of its immensity, to the little bitty church. And he's, you know, he's the king of that too. No, 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 no. The church is the vehicle through which Christ's lordship should shine most brightly. Think about it this way. The world was produced by a word. Not just the world, all of creation. Let there be light, and there was light. The world was created by a word, but his church is created how? By his blood. You think there's a difference there? Between all things being created by his word, but his precious people, his body, his bride, his church, being created only by his blood. And so he makes an abrupt turn. In verse 18, he says, Jesus is the head of the church. You go, all right, we were talking about creation. How in the world did you get from creation to the church? He's saying Jesus is the sovereign, he's the chief, he's the head, he's the leader, he's the one who guides and governs. The he is emphatic. He is the head of the church. No other head. There's no, there's no man, there's no angel, there's no pope. Jesus is the head of his church. He's the ruler. And again, it goes to this language. It says he is the beginning, he's the firstborn from the dead. Well, here's something that's really kind of interesting. That firstborn language occurs again, and we go, all right, uh, that word's confusing because we have to explain. Firstborn means not created. It means primacy, rank, relationship. You're using it again. Why are you, why are you using this again? Just don't use that word. Well, <clears throat> here's what makes the word significant. Over here, he's called the firstborn of creation. Now he's called the firstborn from the dead. Creation new creation. Here's the thing that's great. I don't know if 2014 was a good year for you. I hope that it was. I'm sure it was filled with surprises and challenges that you didn't expect. But regardless of what kind of year you had in 2014, in Christ, through his cross and through the message of the gospel, there is a new beginning that is possible. In Christ! Because he's not just the king of creation, he is the king of new creation. Just as Jesus was supreme over the material world, over the Grand Canyon, over the stars and the neutrinos. He is the king of the spiritual world, the church. By reference to the church and his resurrection, he is making the point that through Christ, there is a new beginning that is possible for all of creation. And as the firstborn from the dead, the good news for us to celebrate this morning is that Jesus has conquered death by his resurrection, and that became kind of the title to earn him the right to be called the head of the church. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the first person to come back from the dead and never die. Listen, Lazarus came back from the dead only to die again. Other people that were resurrected, or a better word would probably be resuscitated, Not that their resurrection was not true. It's just they were resuscitated to live a few more years to do what? To die again. Jesus rose and never died again. He lives eternally. And this is good news. This is the supremacy of Christ. Just like in um, creation, Jesus' role in redemption is unique. 
in verses 19 through 20, it says some important things. It says, all of God's fullness dwelt in him so that through him all things might be reconciled to him. The whole purpose of the incarnation is that this world will be made right. And while we don't see it perfectly clearly just yet, we see glimpses that God is being faithful to his promise to restore creation to his original intention. So God is the one who initiates. He's the one who sustains. He's the one who carries both creation and redemption to completion. And what is that completion? It says to the place, verse 19, he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. That is where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That's his purpose. That's his purpose. The purpose of of, uh, his reconciliation was to bring all things under his headship. Christ as God allowed himself to die in order to do away with sin and to bring man and God together. I'm going to chase a a quick rabbit tail here just for a second because uh, this next point is important. We've been talking about Christ's headship, his supremacy over all things. And it extends, his headship extends over all things. But guys, all things are not a part of his body. When you talk about the body of Christ, are the stars a part of his body? Are the trees a part of his body? Are the oceans a part of his body? No. Only those who believe have an opportunity to be a part of his body. Again, that goes back to this whole thing of he made the word, world with a word. He makes the church with his blood. We, among all people, Christians, are the only ones who have the opportunity to be a part of the body of Christ. And here's the thing that's kind of troubling, and I'll, I'll say this specifically to this, this gathering, because in our first service, it's not a problem for them. When I meet a young person and somebody comes to Christ, it may take six months to two years before they'll ever consider joining the church. Because circle, circle, dot, dot, now I got my Jesus shot, what in the world do I need the church for? I'm saved. And I don't really like y'all. I don't need y'all. Y'all are going to slow me down. You know, if, if I'm going to heaven when I die, what in the world do I need the church for? And guys, among young people, we have completely lost the ability to understand what it means to lock our arms and our lives together and to learn how to struggle well with life and do life together as the body of Christ. Listen, newsflash, you're not the body of Christ by yourself. You're a lone ranger. It's only when God's people come together because his purpose was to purchase a people. And so when we talk about this, that all things, his headship is over all things, but not all things are a part of his body. It is unwise, certainly unscriptural, to be a Christian who does not want to be a part of his body. That's a weird thing. And, 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 And that's one of the ways that Christ demonstrates his supremacy. It is only us who believe who have the opportunity to enjoy this privileged and renewed relationship. Don't you want it? I could go on and on and on. And I'm, I'm, I'm on medicine for sinus infection, so I won't, because I'd ramble. But I could go on and I could share 10 stories right now about things that this church has done for people, that people's lives are different this year. And you could do the same. Because there's something that's right from really, truly being a part of the body of Christ. And to drive the point home in verses 21 through 23, Paul talks about how he applies this very personally to us. And he says, friend, listen, not only is Jesus the Lord of creation, not only is he the Lord of the church, he's the Lord of the Christian. 
Listen to the way it says this, verse 21. Once you, me, were alienated and hostile in your minds because of your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you've heard. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation and under heaven. And I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Flip back just a few verses to verses 13 and 14. He says it in another way. Paul says, Jesus has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into into the kingdom of the Son he loves. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins in him. The Bible says that even though we were hostile to the gospel, that Christ has reconciled us. He's offered us forgiveness, redemption from our sins. And I love it because it talks and concludes with both a past tense and a future tense promise. It says, you were hostile and alienated, but God... Verse 22, has reconciled you. Past tense. How? Through his physical body, through his death. This has happened. God has taken care of it. If you believe, everything in the past has been done for your benefit, for your redemption. But there is an important future tense too. Do you see it? He says, all these things being presented holy, faultless, blameless before him will be yours. If Indeed, you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. Friends, it is, as we said at the beginning, trust and obey. And in one sense, your obedience makes your trust visible. This is not talking about losing your salvation. It's talking about staying grounded in the gospel. And friend, if you believed the gospel a long time ago, And today, something newer and shinier comes along, and you cast your affections upon that for your justification, then, friend, you never believed the gospel in the first place. Because the Bible says that the way we make our faith visible is walking with God faithfully all the days of our life. And if we can walk away, it doesn't mean that we've lost our salvation. It means that we never had it in the first place. Because when God gives us the treasure of the gospel, it changes a man, it changes a woman. And instead of making us rebels, it makes us willing servants of God Most High. So friends, as we go into 2015, as we conclude this series on the king in the cradle, has not God been good to you in Christ? Will you not be faithful to him in 2015? Doesn't mean that all your problems are going to disappear right now. Boom! 2015 is trouble free. But you have an opportunity... To prove your love to the God that so loved you that he sent his son. If you will remain steadfast and grounded in the gospel. Let's pray, please. God, we thank you for this word. And we thank you that you are the always faithful, never changing, holy and perfectly loving God. That is an awesome truth for us to proclaim this morning. And God, we know that those, those things that we just said about you are not true of us. We're not always loving. We're not always faithful. We're not unchanging. We can be moody. God, you reign supreme over the Christian, just as you reign supreme 
over all the world. The big difference is the stars do exactly what they're supposed to do. And they never rebel. We do. And for that reason, we need, we, need, we need a Savior. And so God, I pray today that if there's someone here who's not certain of their relationship with God, if they've trusted in Christ alone for their forgiveness of their sins, that you would help them to figure that out today, that you'd allow them to have a conversation with me or another one of the staff, that we might be able to explain and encourage uh, their um, intake of the gospel message. But God, for those of us that have known you for a long time, may 2015 be the sweetest year that we have of trusting you, understanding that you reign supremely and that you will never leave us or forsake us. God, make us bold. Make us audacious in our faith. Help us to remain steadfast, to, to, to be stalwarts in the kingdom of God, loving you supremely above all. In Jesus' name we pray.